His name was Charles Pierce. B-17192, Charles Pierce. And he was marked for death. Charles Pierce was 18 years old when in September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany and the Third Reich rolled across the Polish border and Charles Pierce, not his actual Polish name, it's his Americanized name, Charles passed away much later in Las Vegas, Nevada, of course. But Charles was taken captive in Poland in 1939, and he spent the next six years of his life undergoing unspeakable, inhuman atrocities. He was in Dachau. They moved him to Treblinka. They finally moved him to Auschwitz. His parents, two of his brothers, he had an enormous family, but his parents and two of his brothers were killed almost immediately. He was marked for death. B-1719. That's all that he was. And anyone who had that mark was destined to die. He wrote a book later called The Art of Survival, in which he detailed a, a time when he was literally standing outside of his, of his stalag, and this frail man named Dr. Joseph Mengele, the doctor of death of these concentration camps, walked down the line. The person next to him was pointed at and sent to the crematorium, dead. The person on this side of him was, well, it was worse, was sent into the medical facility for all kinds of horrific experiments on his legs. But Charles Pierce was marked for forced labor, and he continued to work and to barely survive. At one point, there was 18 solid months when he did not bathe, suffered from typhoid and all other sorts of diseases, malnutrition, ceaseless beatings, mental anguish. He was marked for death. He had no expectation, no anticipation of ever surviving because he was marked for death. Now, the reality is all of us have been marked in life one way or the other, sometimes for good, sometimes not so good. But the reality is Charles Pierce's story is all of our story. We are all from conception marked for death. Our sin did that. And if what I just said shocks you, then praise God. <laughs> because maybe for the first time you realize that our sin is really real and it's a very big deal. We're marked for death. No hope, no expectation, no anticipation of surviving that unless we misunderstand how big a deal sin is. But then the word of God comes along and it actually affirms and it confirms our worst fears that we're marked from death because, for death because of our sin from conception. But as it turns out, there's been a greater plan all along that we could never have discovered on our own. The great mystery of the cosmos that from eternity past, Despite all of our sin and our marking ourselves for death, we might say, well, it's our big idea from God's word, and it goes like this. You were marked for life. And we are in the book of Colossians chapter 2. Peyton's already read verses 8 to 15 for us. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Colossians 2, 8 to 15. You were marked for life. And this was not of your own doing, lest anyone should boast. You were marked for life. We are in the middle of this little epistle to the Colossians written by the Apostle Paul sitting in his first Roman imprisonment. 
Hundreds of miles from Colossae, he's never been there. But the pastor from Colossae has made a journey all the way to Rome to say, Paul, we got problems. We, we, we got all these false teachings that are coming into the church. And Paul, I, I don't know what to do, but people are beginning to drift. People are beginning to, to go off course. Help me, Paul. And so Paul writes this little four-chapter epistle in the first chapter is this wonderful chapter of doctrine in which Paul establishes the theme of his letter, the supremacy of Christ. That's Colossians, the supremacy of Christ. But then he gets one rung more practical. It is confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. Whatever else might come into a church, we hold that up and go, oh, but Jesus is supreme. Jesus is king. He is preeminent. And that has a tendency to obliterate all the other issues, struggles, and heresies that we might encounter. So we had an entire first chapter of nothing but doctrine, nothing but explanation of great theology. This is who God is. This is what he's like. This is what he has done. In Christ, he is the answer. Finally, finally, last week we get to chapter two and we get our very first imperative. We haven't been told to do anything yet, just to, to gaze and to glory at our God. Finally, last week, we get a first imperative, an instruction, a command. And it simply says, walk in the same manner as you were saved. You didn't do it. You received salvation, so walk accordingly. In the same way that you were saved, now walk around in it. Now, finally, here in chapter 2, verse 8, we're going to get our second imperative. You finally get to do something. It's your day. Here we go. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, See to it. Beware. We, we lose a little bit of the sting and, and, the, and the slap. This is as emphatic as Paul can say it. See to it. Head on a swivel. Beware. What does he tell him to be aware of? That no one takes you captive. Now, he's going to use a lot of military language here. As Paul's sitting in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, dictating this to his scribe, see that nobody takes you captive. <laughs> Because Paul's been taken captive, do you see? But he's actually free. See to it that no one takes you captive. How are we taken captive? By our thinking and our feeling. Oh, Paul's in chains, but he's the freest man on the earth because his thinking and his feeling is lined up and congruent with that of his God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty and deceit. Now, the rest of chapter two is Paul dealing with all of these isms and schisms that have tried to corrupt the church for the last, mm, let's see, carry the one, 2,000 years. You see, because the gospel is offensive. The gospel comes along and says, it's good news. God's done a thing in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, full stop. But we as human beings, we don't like that. We, we want to add to it. We want to go, yeah, 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 but yeah, but yeah, but that's great and all, but we'll take it from here. And God goes, no, start over. Start over. You don't get to add anything. We go, yes, but, but, but wouldn't it be good if we also added this to it? And they say, God says, no, Jesus. Well, what if we also do this? God says, no, Jesus. And so in chapter two, we get these four great categories of error that have been assaulting and bombarding and waterboarding the church for 2,000 years relentlessly. And what we're going to find out is there's actually a volitional intentionality behind these things that is wicked. It might just seem like error or confusion. It is not. It is deliberate. 
Now, we're going to talk about philosophy. Paul's going to address, there's four basic Colossian heresies, we might say. Four categories of things that were coming against this church. And by the way, every church and every believer for the last 2,000 years. Philosophy, the love of wisdom. Philosophy in and of itself is good. Philosophy that was being uh, introduced was Gnosticism, trying to make sense of the world, trying to answer the problem of evil. How can horrible, awful things happen if there is a God that claims to be good? And so they tried to explain it by saying, well, original God is not really involved. You have to climb a bunch of rungs on a bunch of ladders to try to get back to that one. The one that created this place is actually ornery and evil. And that's how they made sense of it. So this Gnosticism was a philosophy that tried to make sense. Why is there something instead of nothing? That's a philosophical question. If you've ever sat by a campfire and looked up at the sky and seen the stars and say, I wonder how far those things go. That's a question of philosophy. Why am I here? Why am I here now? Why am I here now with these people? That's a question of philosophy. What is my purpose? What actually happens to me when I breathe my last? These are all questions of philosophy. But Paul's going to say, listen, he's already told us Jesus is the sum of all wisdom. Did you catch that? Colossians 2.3, Mark Alderson talked about this last week. Jesus is the sum of all wisdom. And so any attempt to find or discern or discover enlightenment apart from Jesus is actually idolatrous and therefore useless and therefore sin. I am not saying that we as Christians throw our brains in a bucket. Oh, quite far from that. Quite the opposite. What we are saying is that Jesus is the sum of all wisdom, and we have the mind of Christ, and we are indwelled by his spirit, and we are equipped by his word, and we are encouraged by his people. We uniquely can actually pursue wisdom in a way that nobody else on the planet can. Now, we don't just take our brains out and stop thinking. We think with more wisdom than anybody. Now we say, why is there something instead of nothing? Oh, Jesus, we've already learned in Colossians 1. It's by him. And why is there? For him. He created all things and all things are held together by him and for him. Wow, what's the deal with marriage? Oh, it's about Jesus. It demonstrates how he weds himself to a people and, and, and washes and prepares her and elevates and equips and edifies her. Oh, now I understand my marriage in a different light, way beyond mere human pursuits. What's the deal with why am I here? Oh, for Jesus to make much of him and to make him known. What's the deal with all of these people? Oh, they are the people of God, these people who are from the future as previews of coming attractions, and I see the world differently. So Paul says, beware, on your toes, head on a swivel for these philosophies. Now, later on in chapter two, he's also gonna talk about things like legalism, uh, false religion, where you have to try to add some things. He's gonna talk about mysticism. There was a lot of angel worship and spirit kind of people happening in Colossae. They were like, I don't know about all the religion. I'm just a very spiritual person. Can you just imagine a culture that says those kinds of things? Oh, I don't know about all that. I'm just a very spiritual person. It was happening in Colossae then. It's happening in our world now. And then there was all this asceticism, the Stoics that said, we have to behave a certain way so that God will bless us. Can you just imagine a people like that? Yeah, well, they were around then too. So this morning, we're just talking about philosophy and legalism. It says here in verse 8, 
Make sure no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Tradition is simply a technical term that means that which is handed down. I, I don't know why we do what we do. We just, that's what we've always done. That's how we do things around here. And so it just gets handed down. But why do we do it? What is it based on? Well, we, it's based on the fact that it's what we've always done. That's a tradition. And understand something. Those ideas and traditions infiltrate every single culture and society ever, and they influence us, and they impact us. And so Paul says, open your eyes. See them for what they are. Here's your acid test. Does that tradition make a really big deal of the centrality of Jesus or not? If it does, keep it. If it doesn't, eh. I like baseball, sort of. I like apple pie, mostly. Does it make a really big deal about Jesus? No, then I can do without them. It's true. So we have to be aware of these things. Empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. Now, this is where Paul takes dead aim at the Gnostic philosophy. They thought that these wicked or holy spirits, you had to rebuke the wicked ones and you had to pray to the good ones and they would carry you up the rungs of the ladder. And Paul goes, no, those things are actually operating and what we like to call common sense. It's the theme of Galatians 4. I'll talk about it in Corinthians. These elemental principles are things that people just assume are common sense. You know, things like God helps those who help them themselves. No, that's actually Ben Franklin, not in the Bible. Or if you do good, God will bless you. If you do bad, God will curse you. That's just common sense, right? No, it isn't. Sometimes you do great and you die. That's just how the world actually works because of the corruption and the fallenness of sin. There's all this elemental spirits, elemental principles that are working together to confuse us, to just slightly nudge us off course ever so slightly. If you've ever played golf with me, you know what I'm talking about. There's your target and just one little nudge and suddenly you're underwater. Like, how did that happen? It's what happens. These common sense things that are very, very subtle, but they're intentional. They are deliberate. Beware. And then Paul does this really, really, really clever play on words. We lose a little bit of in our English. He says, make sure that you aren't taken captive. But he doesn't use the normal word for take captive. He uses the Greek word sulagoge, which is strange. And it's intended to sound just like synagogue, synagogue. Don't be taken in by fine-sounding religious liturgical arguments. They will pull you down and away from Jesus. Can this happen? It can happen, and it does happen, and it's tragic. Someone reads a tract back in the old days, or these days they read a YouTube article or a blog, and they go, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I figured out what nobody else in the church has seen. I'm going to pursue this, and I'm captive now by this new-sounding, fresh idea that diminishes the centrality of Christ, and they are held captive by a philosophy and an empty deceit that is deliberately going after them, and it's tragic. Paul says, head on a swivel. I'm sitting in Rome. What's my one message to you? The centrality of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ. Don't be distracted. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Don't be taken in by this. And then verse nine, one of the most succinct, shortest little verses in the whole of your New Testament, and it could not be more central. He says this in verse nine, for in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that little verse right there was the stuff of an ecumenical council that took place in the 5th century, 451 AD in Chalcedon, where these 
bishops, these leaders, these, these pastors came together trying to make sense of the person of Jesus Christ. Is he God? Is he man? And the answer was yes. 100% God, 100% man. This is one of those smoking gun verses that affirms that Jesus is not just some angelic being who seemed like he was a man, that's what the Gnostics were teaching, but that he was also God. Didn't just seem like he was divine, he actually was. And in one full swoop, the Apostle Paul, in one brief sentence, affirms the hypostatic union, the 100%ness of God, the 100% humanness of Jesus, and the math doesn't work, and Paul doesn't care. And these guys sat around in AD 451 and they hashed that out and they went, well, Paul, Colossians 2.9 says, and that settled the matter. He is uniquely divine. He's also 100% human. Pope Leo I had this great quote as he presided over this council. Such a great quote to settle the matter. He said, in Christ Jesus, neither humanity without true divinity nor divinity without true humanity may be believed to exist. And so that settled the issue, making a big deal about who Jesus is. And if he is, then you have to crucify the intellect to adhere to any other system of belief. It just would not make sense. If there is this one who is 100% God, but who is also 100% human, and who loves you, why would you pursue any other arena whatsoever? Now, here's how it gets even crazier. Verse 10. Verse 9, he says, in him, the whole fullness, that idea of fullness, the play Roma, that's what all the philosophers were trying to attain, trying to ascend to, try to achieve. We want the fullness. But Paul says that's actually a person. It's Jesus. And here's what's crazy. Verse 10, and you, past tense, it's finished, have been filled in him. Oh, you want the play Roma? You want the finished fullness? Done. Because it's a person and he actually loves you and he's actually given you all that you could ever want or aspire to or seek. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Oh, you have a new decision-making mind. You don't make decisions according to that person that you were when you were merely marked for death. Now you're marked for life. You have a new head. You think, what would Jesus do if he was living his life through me? Because he is. He is the head of my body. I, I want to think his thoughts after him. I want to feel his feelings after him. I want to love his people after him because he's the head. And not only is he the head, he's over all these other angelic beings, all these authorities and powers and thrones and dominions because he created them. We have the fullness already. No other angelic beings are ever said to have the fullness of deity. We do. Now that's astonishing. I want you to understand this. What's true of Jesus becomes true of us. I don't know how you can get any better news than that. No, we will never be divine. We are not deity. We're not God. But in every other way, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. And so what does that mean? Well, read the Gospels. Read the Gospel accounts and you just look at this guy's life and you go, that guy, that's, that's the life I wish I had. He's always saying the right thing. He's always doing the right thing. He's always doing the compassionate, generous, incredible thing. Jesus goes, I know. And that's what I'm making you. Do you see? Don't get picked off by these cheap substitutes of adding stuff to the gospel. No, for the Christian, growth is by nutrition, never addition. We don't add anything to the gospel. We simply feast on him and we grow by nutrition, not by addition. 
you have been filled in him already, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, verse 11, you, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, there's a lot going on here. Paul's going to use an Old Testament illustration in verse 11, a New Testament illustration in verse 12. In him you were circumcised. Now, he is not talking about the circumcision that little baby Jesus on the eighth day of his existence experienced in, in Bethlehem. He's not talking about that. It's, it's, uh, it's way more graphic. It, it's way more shame-filled. It's, it's way more violent. Our English translations rightly sanitize this somewhat. All through the Old Testament, the command of God to the people of Israel was, circumcise your hearts. Now, there's an outward symbol to demonstrate an inward reality of circumcision, but it's always about your heart. But what we have is Jesus, who is God, but is also 100% human. In fact, he is the only ultimate human. He is true Israel, and he was the one who was utterly, infinitely, perfectly circumcised in heart in every thought, word, and deed of his life. And when Paul says, in him you have been circumcised, not of human hands, not of human hands as an Old Testament reference to anything that was made by people as an idol. So what Paul has just done in one sentence is said that, hey, if you're still relying on a symbol, an outward religious rite, that is made by human hands, that is idolatrous. That is made by human hands, and God does not honor it. So stop it. In fact, he's going to expand on that and tell us what circumcision really is here in verse 11. In him, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. How? By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I will tell you, I have been wrecked this week every time I have read Colossians 2.11. Because I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus. But this will destroy any sentimentality you might still be carrying around. Paul just called the cross of Christ and what Jesus experienced on that cross a circumcision. His flesh was made disgusting, vile, and detestable, and it was cut away and discarded. The cross was the circumcision of our Jesus this vile, detestable, useless bit cut off, discarded. What did that? Our sin. Our tendency to rebel, our tendency to refuse to bow the knee to his sovereignty, his goodness, his grace, our faithlessness. He became it and it was stripped off of him viscerally and bodily. And Paul says, in the mind of God, check this, in the mind of God, you were there. Now, praise God, you weren't literally, physically there, but super importantly, supra importantly, in the mind of God, you actually were there. You were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. And there, that's right there where we have to get this. That it was us marked for death that exchanged that mark for death with Jesus. We took off our marking of sin, all of us. And we gave it to him. The innocent one, who is the only one marked for life, and he gave us his marking. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has a great, great quote on this that has just been so convicting all week long as I've been studying on this. 
He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them. Maybe that's still kind of what you think. That there's just some bad people out there somewhere and we just need to get rid of them and then society will be all better. By the way, that is a very worldly, earthy, secular, pagan mindset. If we can just get rid of all those people who are not like me and destroy them, then the world will be a happy, perfect place. Nothing new under the sun. Solzhenitsyn saw the same thing. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but... The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Solzhenitsyn says. The answer? Jesus. Jesus. To mark us for life in the body of his circumcision at the cross. This is how we appropriate it, verse 12. This is how we get it on us. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Ah, we've moved from another outward symbol of an inward reality from the Old Testament circumcision to baptism in the New Testament. This is why we say what we say in believers' baptism here at Bethel. For you have been buried with Christ. In the mind of God, you died and raised to walk in newness of life in him, him as your head. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now we have to understand what we're talking about, baptism. We're talking about conversion and justification, being found guilty, declared righteous. We're not talking merely about water baptism. That's just the outward symbol of the inward reality. Because of what Christ has done, we accept, we appropriate that we were buried with him. We died. We'll talk more about that in chapter three. And we have been raised to walk in newness of life in him. No longer marked for death, you are marked for life. The circumcision of Jesus at the cross was you being marked for life. I am 100% certain that 0% of us fully appreciate and take advantage of this truth. That what the Bible has just told us in, here in Colossians and in Ephesians and in Galatians and in Corinthians is that the same power, the same marvelous might that raised Jesus from the dead to walk in newness of life is available and accessible to you and me now for daily living. And yet we just sort of slog through life hoping to not die alone. No, no, no. You're marked for life, not merely marked for toleration, <laughs> not merely marked for eking it out, you're marked for life, the life of Jesus. Verse 13, and you, you Colossians, you East Texan people, and you who were dead in your trespasses, separate, cut off, vile, detestable, discarded, just like the body of Jesus, marked for death. That was your default condition. Here's the gospel. So hear the gospel, you were dead cut off in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh outside the covenant community of God's messianic people. You're outside. You are a Philistine. You want to find yourself in the Bible? Go to, go to Samuel, find the Philistines. They're horrible. That's you. <laughs> Nobody has those verses on their letter jackets, but we should. Uncircumcised Philistine uh, and God loves me. 
And he's taken this enemy and he's made him a friend. He's made him a firstborn male heir. Now that's unbelievable. And yet, we must believe it. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. God made alive. Oh, we were marked for death. We've been marked for life. God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He didn't let bygones be bygones. He forgave them. It's a technical word. He paid the debt. He couldn't just look the other way. Somebody had to pay that bill. And it was all deposited onto the person of Jesus Christ, his son, the innocent in place of the guilty. In a single word, the confession of our gospel is substitution. He forgave, not by just turning a blind eye to it. No, no. He paid for it himself in his son. He forgave us our trespasses. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but this is an illustration from antiquity that everybody in Rome and Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea and Smyrna and Pergamum and Ephesus, they would have all understood because here's what would happen 2,000 years ago. If you could not pay your debts, you had borrowed money from some master, from some other property owner, if you couldn't pay your debts, well, it's not like today where you just got another credit card. No, no, it wasn't like that then. You were thrown in debtor's prison. And your name was written in very large print on parchment, and it was nailed in the city square. Your name. And it was a shame to your family that nobody could do business with you until you paid your debts. And you would sit and rot in debtor's prison until you could pay your debts. Let me just tell you, it's very difficult to pay off your debts when you're sitting in prison. Not a whole lot of good work in prison 2,000 years ago. And so there was your name. But if somehow, some way, one of your family members somehow had resources or means or willingness, or perhaps even a, another property owner, a master would pay your debt and you would go to work for that person as an indentured servant. What they would do, this is true, they would go to the square and they would put a big chi, an X across your name, that the debt had been paid. The debt had been canceled and you were now free because somebody else paid your debt. Paul picks up on that and goes, you had this insurmountable debt, marked for death, debtor's prison, everything held against you that's ever been in thought, word, and deed that is outside the character of Christ. Eric. And there I sit in prison with religious rights or good deeds or such and such trying to, I, I got no way to get out of prison. And so Paul goes, no, 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 it was set aside. Let me explain how it was set aside. Verse 14, it was canceled. Because the blood of Jesus puts a big red X across that written record of everything that I am marked for death, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Oh, 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 he ups it. He didn't just write an X across it in his own blood. He takes it off and he nails it to his own cross. Not only has it been canceled, it's obliterated. It no longer exists. The warrant for my arrest and execution has been nailed to the body of Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, I don't know about you. I sin a lot. A lot. Particularly what happens between the ears. And I find myself driving around going, Nailed! 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 
because my enemy accurately accuses me. He's not wrong. But I remind him that it was nailed to the body of my Jesus. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? It's gone. I was marked for death. I've been marked for life. And that's good news. Does that mean there's no consequence? No, there's consequence. Of course there is. But there is forgiveness. See, there is sin, but there is a Savior. But wait, this just gets so cool. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing. One of Paul's favorite words. This is a, a technical term. It's a military term. The triumphantai is a military procession when a conquering general would come back from some military campaign. Uh, let's just say uh, some Roman general goes up into the Germanic tribes and he, can't, he conquers a bunch of those tribes. He would bring them back. And this long parade, because they didn't have the interwebs back then, they didn't have any sort of mass media, and so they would have these long, triumphant procession parades, and they would show all the spoils of war, all the livestock, all the treasures, all the different slaves that they had captured, and at the very back of the line would be the king that they had captured, the rival enemy king, some Germanic person or some Gaul person or whomever it might have been, and they would put him at the very, very end, and they would have stripped him naked to shame him, and they would have beaten him and flogged him, and they would have, they would have paraded him down the street so that all the citizens could see, we are victorious, we are victorious, and then right there in front of everybody, they would kill that guy at the very end, which is precisely what Rome thought they were doing to Jesus, what the Jewish leaders wanted Rome to do to Jesus. They stripped him and they said, oh, king of the Jews, watch this. He's naked, he's beaten, he's shamed. Paul flips it upside down. He disarmed the rulers. That's a play on words. He was stripped, his body, his flesh was stripped, but in the process, they thought they had won. Turns out, he stripped them and he's dragging them to this day behind his triumphant procession, shamed beaten and disgraced. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. They thought they'd shamed him. They themselves have been shamed. That's what God did in Christ. We were marked for death. We are marked for life. So what do we take away from this passage? You remember our friend at the very beginning, Charles Pierce? Charles Pierce ended up coming to America after the war because he survived. Somehow, six years of all that, he survived. And he writes about stepping off the boat and arriving in the harbor in Boston, Massachusetts. And he talked about the whole way, coming across the Atlantic, just waiting, just waiting for a U-boat to torpedo his ship because he didn't believe he was free. But then he talks about that moment when he stepped onto dry, solid ground in Boston, Massachusetts, and he knew he was finally free. Now, can you imagine how he experienced the world? Did he just go back to the way things used to be in August of 1939 in Poland? Oh, no, 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 no. He experienced the world in a completely different way. Every encounter, every experience, every relationship was completely different and seen through a completely different set of eyes. And the crazy, amazing, glorious gospel truth is that's each of our story marked for death. But at some point we realized that we were in debtor's prison with no way to get out, but Jesus marked us for life. And so we step into a 
freedom if we truly experience it, if we truly understand and receive it. So what do we do with this? Let me just give you three very quick summary implications here. Number one, it's pretty obvious. It goes like this. Live like you're alive. <laughs> live like you're alive. Let me nuance that slightly. Don't just live like you're not dead or barely animate. Live with intentionality. So many well-meaning Christians and a whole bunch of unbelievers go through life like they're simply enduring the waking hours of each day, hoping to simply die one day and not be alone. And that's the best they can hope for. No, not for a Christian you are marked for life and life abundant. Sometimes this happens to us because of fear, because of pain, because of suffering, or just a lengthy season of depression or discouragement, and I am not discounting that. But the stuff that makes up each day is far from the life that God intends. And so we have to preach little sermons to our own souls and be reminded that we are from the future. We're not from this world. We're from the coming kingdom. That's where we are heading just like Charles Pierce, we came into this world marked for death because of sin. My hunch is that a good many of us to this day still think that we're basically good people that every now and then make some bad choices and we just need a little Jesus nudge every now and then. And if that's you, then you'll never fully appreciate the glory and the grandeur of how God has removed that marking for death and placed it on his own son, Jesus, and had his flesh stripped in your place. You've been marked for life. And then, and then, God gives us the nobility and the dignity to discern how we will live with that gift of life in this world around people that we exist. If you'd been rescued from Auschwitz, after everything you saw and experienced and expected to happen to you, what might be some of the things you'd want to do having been rescued? In a very real sense, in the mind of God, this is precisely our circumstance and this is our story. So I want to challenge you very practically to pray about, to ask someone you, you know and love and trust about what makes you come alive and then see about doing that. Fully alive, marked for life, no longer marked for death. Number two goes like this. Look like you're alive. I don't know if you had this experience. I played a little bit of athletics in high school, and I always heard this refrain, Barton, look alive! Why did he say that? Because I didn't. <laughs> Sitting there, as my dad would say, staring at it like a calf at a new gate. Just... So we just sort of just this malaise, right? Look alive! Sometimes we Christians can look like we're still awaiting rescue, joyless and dour, but we're supposed to resemble and reflect and represent the glory of the coming kingdom. We are the previews of coming attractions. Look alive. But also, we have to look like we're alive. Look at the world around us with a different perspective and a view. If you've literally stepped out of death into life with a whole world in front of you, it takes on a new bright and vivid texture and tone. Not only that, but we start seeing people around us, not as in our way, but as the way. They represent opportunities to establish relationships that'll potentially escort them out of darkness into light, from death to life. We see and experience things in our world, like COVID, like the war in Ukraine, and local partisan politics, and the economy, and the tragedy in Uvalde, and many other places around our nation. And we're given an insight with the mind of Christ how he sees it, and how we are to feel about it, like him. If you find yourself with nothing more than a boiling and condemning rage, 
then it's not the mind of Christ. We see the world through the eyes of someone who has been marked for death, but then rescued and marked for life. We have a greater appreciation for the things that matter most, and we apply our lives to bringing Christ-like love and joy and peace to a dark and dying world and not taking all the wrongs in the world personally. (laughs) Can I just pause and preach for a second? Stuff's going to go wrong. It's not personal. It's just a fallen world. Can I just be so bold as to say, it's really not about you at all. Life is hard. And you can have joy and peace in the midst of it. Don't take it personal. It's a fallen world. Third point goes like this. After we live like we're alive, we look like we're alive, we love like we're alive. I've had the privilege and the honor of being in many hospital rooms and many hospice rooms and seeing many people pass. And I take that with such honor. Never once... Has anyone told me, gosh, if I could just have attended one more meeting? Never heard that, ever. If I could just have have put one more uh, pillow in the right place on my sofa? No one's ever, ever said that to me. If I could just make one more phone call. You know, no, 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 what they always say, I wish I had more time with my kids, my spouse, my church. Look around. Love like you're alive. Not merely tolerating your existence, but love with intentionality, with a volitional, white-hot intensity for somebody else. You will never feel so alive as when you want somebody else's good above your own. (laughs) You will be carbonated in the spinal fluid all the days of your life. You will be intolerable and glorious just look at, look at Jesus. He just walked around. He didn't heal everybody. He didn't feed everybody. But everybody that he encountered was just, oh, that guy. That's what he's called and that's what he's equipped us to do. How might that affect how we interact and engage with our spouses? No longer viewing them as those irritants that do those irritating little things that we'll miss like crazy when they're gone. How about our children or our parents or our siblings or our neighbors? <gasps> Dare I even say church people? What if we actually just set aside whatever ambition project we might have for ourselves and we just sought the good of someone else above our own? And I'm talking about like this really gnarly campaign of guerrilla blessing people. Like, there's a dude over there. Y'all don't even know him, but some of you need to think, I'm gonna figure out how to bless that dude's socks off. He's not gonna see it coming. He's just gonna go, wham! And he's gonna get blessed. In the next two weeks of your life, you'll just be floating. And that dude has no idea. Congratulations, Seth. It's gonna happen. Some of you are gonna figure out ways to bless somebody just because. And you're never gonna feel more alive than when you do that. Love like you're alive. Because we've been marked for life. It's precisely what Jesus wants and why he did what he did. When we love one another, the Father is glorified and all of heaven rejoices. I mean, have you ever been in a large family gathering when you hear the kids actually playing together and laughing and being nice to one another? (gasps) I'm ready, Jesus. You can take me. It happens so rarely, but it's such a beautiful thing. We've been marked for life. Jesus lived. He died. He was raised to walk in newness of life, and he is alive forevermore. 
I was marked for death. I have been marked for life. I am alive forevermore in him. And so this is how I pray. And I invite you to pray along with me. Lord Jesus, how can I live and look and love more alive in your world? Lord Jesus, would you take all the stuff I have stacked up in my life that is apart from and outside of your character and desire for my life and include it on that canceled written code that you crossed off at your cross? Lord Jesus, I thank you that the answer is already yes. And so I ask by your spirit and among your people that you would give me wisdom, knowledge, and insight to live, look, and love like you would in my sphere of influence. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and in my life. Thank you for marking me for life. And I pray this, and I pray that all of you gathered and listening to my voice will have prayed it as well in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus, amen.